What's wrong with you people? Welcome to Not Another Baptist Podcast that is just like every other Baptist podcast. My name is Matt Hensley, and I'm joined by Kyle, non-alcoholic beer man, uh, who my Siri or whatever says pronounces your name Boar Man. And so I kind of like yeah. that a little better because you are a little boring, and it's good <laughs> to see you uh, today, but we don't really have to talk about you or how you're doing because we have a much greater looking and greater sounding guest today. Bryant Wright. And uh, so, Bryant, how how are you doing today? Well, I didn't realize, Matt, that I was going to need to provide pastoral care for Kyle and <laughs> deep down at the beginning of this podcast, but I'm doing fine. <laughs> awesome. Well, it is so good to see you, and we are grateful for our partnership with Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And if you are looking for theological education that includes both academic challenge and hands-on ministry experience, then Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary is for you, and they have upcoming preview days right around the corner on October 21st, and we encourage you to take a look at those at swibbits.edu forward slash preview. Bryant Wright, before we dig into your book and kind of talk about that, tell us what you do at the IMB and North American Mission Board through Send Relief. Okay, well, thank you for asking on that, Matt. I'm very fortunate in having an opportunity to continue in full-time ministry. And when I was about four months away of finishing up at Johnson Ferry as the pastor, uh, Paul Chitwood called and told me that the the longtime leader, BGR, was retiring, and he wanted to go in a little different direction for their relief and compassion ministry for the IMB and have somebody that was had been a pastor and would be out preaching in the churches, kind of carrying the banner of that ministry. And I was immediately intrigued. And we, uh, I asked him, I said, as a pastor, have you and Kevin ever thought about combining the Compassion and Relief Ministries? So it'd be a one-stop shop for pastors and churches that are looking for denominational leadership in this area and service in this area. He said, well, we've thought about it. We hadn't really done anything. I'll, I'll pray about it. And to Paul's credit, Paul really took the initiative and reached out to Kevin. Kevin was open to it. And within three months' time, they had come together with a joint agreement that for the first time ever, IMB and NAM would have a joint ministry together. And they asked me to be the first president of Sin Relief. They used that name because they felt like NAM had used that name three or four years earlier when they started their compassion ministry uh, and just felt like it was more known. And our headquarters is in the NAM building, but I'm actually an IMB staff person. And about 35% of our group is IMB, about 60 plus percent are NAM. And of course, most of the staff is just scattered all over uh, the world and North America. But I'm just very thankful to have this uh, opportunity to continue to serve ministry. I had no desire to retire from ministry when I was sure God was leading me to hand off the reins of leadership at Johnson Ferry. I'm thankful that the Lord opened this door. Well, uh, so we are um, going to talk about a, a new book that you released uh, earlier this summer um, called Succession. And you come from um, a large church setting. 
Um, uh, most of our audience is going to be in um, smaller churches. Uh, transitions in, in smaller churches are, are not typically as organized, I guess you could say, as, as a transition in a larger church. So, so talk through us um, a little bit about the book and then how we normally do tra- transitions versus a plan for succession. Well, Kyle, I think one advantage the Lord has given me in being the planner of Johnson Ferry, uh, the founding pastor, is I know what it's like to pastor a very small church. And I remember our very first annual ministry budget of $88,000. That included the lease on the empty doctor's office we were leasing and, and uh, all the operations and the pastor's salary and everything. And, that's, and boy, it would have been a luxury to have a part-time secretary. I was the staff uh, in those days. So I, I relate to guys that have a smaller church setting. It's just God, for some reason, chose to lead Johnson Ferry to become a large church uh, in Metro Atlanta. But I also think, Kyle, that really in large and small churches, there is a mindset that when the pastor retires, that they set up a search committee, maybe have an interim pastor during that time. And the person who's been there serving a long time, who really knows the church as well as anyone, is just on the sidelines. And it doesn't make any sense to have the person who knows the church so well, who understands the challenges of pastoring that church, not have a part in the process. So I do think small, medium, large churches can all benefit when there is a pastor that has served for a length of time and has some tenure there with a succession plan. And that's where I hope this book will be of help to a lot of churches. One of the things that that uh, I was I was encouraged by was watching y'all uh, pass the baton to one another at Johnson Ferry, and uh, and I think really set him up to be the the pastor. He has a vision, he has a mission, he has all of that. And, and how do you kind of navigate that tension between being involved and helping them through this, and and uh, and also letting this guy lead out in a vision and a mission uh, to continue to advance the kingdom there. First of all, what I began to realize is I was lacking vision for the future of Johnson Ferry. And the Lord had guided me uh, in think our mission was very clear. And the Great Commission, if you're a Great Commission congregation, the mission's going to be basically the same in, in a church that has that. Um, but the vision is where the pastor is plugging in details about how to carry out that mission in that locale, in that local church there. It might mean that there is a new major ministry that there's going to be a focus in the next few years. It might mean uh, adding an additional service or a different style of worship. It might mean uh, taking on specific mission projects. It might mean some kind of capital expansion. Whatever it is, there, there the vision to me includes how you're carrying out what God has put on your heart to fulfill that mission. And what was happening I would look at decades, Matt, and when I was moving into the fourth decade, 30 to 40 years at Johnson Ferry, I had prayed for God's guidance, and there were about 10 things that God put on my heart for that. But we were about five or six years um, into that fourth decade, and nine of those 10 things God had already fulfilled. And I was praying, Lord, what's, what's next? And you don't want to just think up some idea and ask God to bless it and then tell the congregation, this is a fresh vision. So I, I was really struggling with that. And what happened was the Lord kept coming back. It's time 
for you to implement the succession plan that y'all have set up. It's time to get it in motion. And so that was the vision. And so that was a real different kind of vision from, are we going to start this new ministry? Where, where are we going to go here with an extra worship service? All those kind of things. But I think that is, that's a key for pastors. To, when you realize there's a lack of vision for this particular congregation that God has put on your heart, it could be time either to retire from that church or that God is leading you to a new role. And then because we had a succession plan that had been implemented about five years before that, the only thing that was changed is I had told the elders, I really envision going to about 70. That would be 40 years as pastor at Johnson Ferry, 70 years old. Sounds like biblical numbers. That all sounds good. But when I was 67, that's when God really began to stir in my heart. It was time to do this. And so then there's a, a separate thing, uh, and we can talk about this, about what we went through as far as the search process, finding Clay Smith, uh, the overlap that Clay and I had of four months, which I think was just invaluable to both of us, not just to him in understanding more of the church culture, but to me too, in letting go and for the congregation to see this transition happening right in front of their eyes. And if we have time today, I'd love to talk about some things we did in that four month period, because I think they were vital to helping the congregation accept Clay uh, as the new pastor. Yeah. So, so walk us through a little bit of that. Um, I mean, obviously don't, don't spoil the book because we want folks to go out and buy the book themselves, but, but kind of the cliff's note of, of what that succession plan looked like for Johnson Ferry. Well, I, I'd say, first of all, where I hope the book can help is ours was about a six to seven year process. So pastors that are in their late fifties, early sixties, really it's, it's the time to start thinking about this. If you have a long tenure there, but when Clay came on, um, we overlapped for four months. And what we did, Kyle, is, first of all, had clarity on my end date. I think this is one of the most overlooked things where problems occur with the long tenure pastor. you got to come up with an end date and you got to stick to it. Because so many of the horror stories we hear are related to senior pastors that just could not let go. And they kind of have that too. Well, we'll know when it's time with the person that's going to be the successful that leaves him in limbo. The church is in limbo. So you got to have an end date. So working back from an end date, which was about a four month period, uh, then we set it up where I would be leading, whether it's a deacons meeting, elders meeting, staff meeting, things in worship and clay would be observing that first month. The second month, we both led them together all those types of meetings, and he would have a certain responsibility, I'd have a certain responsibility, and people would be seeing us lead together. The third month, he led all these events. I would be there, but he would be leading. And then the fourth month, I was not there. I mean, it, it was just, it was happening right in front of their eyes, seeing that. At the same time, we were doing series together all through that four-month period. He would preach maybe two weeks. I'd preach two weeks. And then as we got closer to then, he would preach two weeks and I would preach one week. You know, it just all that was happening. But we were in the same series. And then we had a very, for me, a very emotional handoff uh, in that final Sunday as we shared in the message. And I, I really got to preach to Clay in the last couple of messages with the congregation hearing that, looking at Paul and Timothy and just some examples there biblically. So I think that was really 
uh, that really helped Kyle as much as anything for the congregation to see what was happening visually rather than just hearing about a game plan there. Yeah. Bryant, I'm picturing you on that fourth month at those maybe business meetings or leadership meetings or something like that at the Starbucks across the street, sending a <laughs> selfie to Kyle. Hey, thinking about you tonight. Hope you have a good night. You know, that's what I'm picturing. Uh, yeah. But but in order for us to even have a succession plan in the first place, uh, you know, some of what you're describing in terms of the four or five years, the seven years kind of knowing this is coming requires us as pastors to stay longer than two, three, four, or five years, you know, for that to even be necessary in the first place. And so what would you say were keys to to enduring to to that end? So let me let me share first of all, I, when I came to Johnson Ferry, knowing that we would begin a new church in a growing community of North Atlanta, I thought, man, if I could stay 10 years, that would be awesome. I didn't know pastors stayed 10 years. I mean, I, I knew there were, but I mean there were very few, it seemed like. So 10 years seemed like a long time for a 29-year-old kid uh, moving in the first full-time pastor in his life. Um, then I went on a sabbatical that the church gave me after my sixth year, which, by the way, I'd love to talk about sabbaticals because I think it's a key to longevity here. But on that first sabbatical, I visited 36 growing churches around the country, beaten with as many pastors as I possibly could. And just interviewing about how God had blessed their ministry and longevity was a part of it and really came out of that sabbatical, Matt, with a real conviction that if God would allow it, I would love just to have all my years of pastoring at Johnson Ferry, because if there was one common denominator I saw in growing churches, and this was not just Baptist churches, it was different, you know, evangelical churches, Presbyterian, Methodist, whoever, whatever label they had, but they were an evangelical church where the pastor had stayed a long time, non-denominational churches. And the longevity of the pastor was the one common denominator. And because the average tenure when I was a young pastor was, I think, two and a half years for a pastor. Well, you know, you've hardly gotten to know the church, much less the community in two and a half years. So there's something about putting down roots. And Matt, one of the great uh, joys was being able to stay at Johnson Ferry. Uh, I definitely talked to other churches because I felt like I, sh if I said hands off, God, I, I'm not going to consider anything along the way. That would be selfish on my part and would be kind of taking ownership that was unhealthy. But I never really felt seriously uh, led to think seriously uh, about uh, contacts that would come. I would pray, but just I felt I was in the right place along the way. So, but you do have to persevere because it doesn't mean, you know, in the third and fourth year of Johnson Ferry, we were growing rapidly. There were some of the early founding type members that were struggling because people are drawn to a church plant in those days. This will show you how old I am. We were called a mission church. We didn't even use the word plant. Uh, this was planning a church before planning was cool. But uh, in the early days of our mission church, right about the time we were constituting and becoming an official church, some of those early stakeholders, I call it, were really struggling because they are drawn to a new plant with a vision of the kind of church they want it to be. And when the church is not becoming the type of church they are envisioning, they get frustrated and they take that out on the pastor. So in that third or fourth year, I really would wake up for my quiet time some mornings, not sure if they had had a meeting the night before to fire this young pastor to go in a different direction, because it was really not easy. I mean, I, they were really becoming unhappy and, and really, by and large, they were 
a much more what I would call traditional Southern, they envision a more traditional Southern Baptist church. And so going to the word to find strength for the growing pains, I got real convicted that we say we're a people of the book in Southern Baptist life, but we totally ignore what scripture says about governance in the church and got convicted that elder leadership and a plurality of elders was clearly taught in the New Testament. And yet we have pastor and deacon, uh, even in the Baptist faith, the message. I mean, I, I think we're just ignoring what it says about elders. And so I went to our deacons who were, who were set up to be a ministry body and led them in a half day kind of retreat at the church building where I developed a Bible study on Old and New Testament teaching on elders. Just got them to do this Bible study. We came back together and I asked them just what they thought about what the word says. And one of the deacons said, Brian, I know you're not asking us to take a vote on this, but I'd like to just have a silent uh, kind of vote where we just turn in a yay or nay, whether we feel this is biblical. And I think it was like 30 to three or something like that of the the deacons that felt like this would be a biblical model to go in, which really kind of gave me a green light that these were the accepted leaders and felt that way. I knew who the three were, by the way. I mean, there was no doubt <laughs> in knowing some of the tension that we were dealing with, uh, even though I didn't see any names on all that, but you know, as a pastor uh, on all that. But anyway, that kind of gave me the green light. And then I took it to the church from a biblical teaching standpoint, and we decided to become an elder led congregation. Well, in those days, and with those early families that were very traditional Southern Baptists, that was really their exit point. They just had had enough at that point. But, Matt, I really believe it was one of the most monumental decisions for Johnson Ferry because we also said to the community, this is a different kind of Baptist church in their leadership model, but it was right out of Scripture. I remember the the pastor that was my pastor growing up that gave my name to this group trying to get a church going in East Cobb in North Atlanta. He said, where in the world did you come up with this model? I said, the Bible. I was just, <laughs> just reading the Bible. And it, it was so clear there. And it's interesting, though, as you know, Matt and Kyle, I mean, you look at so many of our plants now, and elder leadership is not at all uncommon. And then you look historically with Spurgeon and other great Baptist. I mean, it's it's not like it's, you know, a radical thing, but Johnson Ferry was able to pioneer a path there. And that really allowed uh, longevity to occur because I then had six godly laymen selected by the congregation on three-year rotational basis that I was able to lead the church through these guys. Obviously, as the church grew, the staff really had the major leadership day to day. But the big picture stuff, I kept going before the elders. And I think that was one of the great blessings that God did along the way. And so I know I'm kind of giving you a, a long answer there, but I, I'm very thankful for the elders in that regard. And then sabbaticals and weekly Sabbath. I just can't say enough. That's probably another thing for us to talk about it. Uh, but it really, weekly Sabbath and sabbaticals have been just huge for longevity, not just for me, Matt, but every minister on the Johnson Ferry staff got a sabbatical every seven years. And, and what that did for the longevity, you know, the executive staff that evolved over the years, the shortest tenure before the guy retired was about 20 years. And three of those guys were over 30 years where we served together. And I think sabbaticals and having a weekly Sabbath was a big part of that. 
pastors tend to neglect the weekly Sabbath. They they feel holier than thou on that. But you know, we're the biggest sinners in the book on ignoring the Sabbath. We feel we got to do the Lord's work. We're indispensable. But that's a kind of a Messiah complex. It's unhealthy for long tenure in ministry. So, so you touched on sabbaticals. So, so um, talk, talk to us briefly, because I know for a lot of pastors, especially if they're, you know, solo pastor, um, yeah. if there's not another staff, yeah. um, the idea of a sabbatical is just terrifying, right? I'm going to walk away for, you know, six weeks or three months or, and is there going to be a church when I, am I going to have a job when I come back? You know, how will the church react when yeah. I suggest a sabbatical? So talk to us real quickly and to our audience about, um, planning not just for for a weekly sabbath but for those longer terms of sabbaticals and and how to begin to think through that well before they hit you know kind of the traditional 7 or 10 years or whenever they whenever they decide to 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 do a sabbatical well i asked the leaders thankfully we had gone with the decision of having elders and so i asked them about setting up a policy where we could have uh, actually, you know, come to think of it, Kyle, I actually asked some of the deacon leaders if we could have that as a policy for a sabbatical and included not just the pastor, but the ministers on the staff, which we didn't have, but I think two or three at that point. And I think looking back when I asked them, <laughs> you know, they thought, well, no pastor will be here seven years. So, you know, we'll probably never even use this thing. But anyway, they allowed it and wrote in the policy. So when it came time for me to take the first sabbatical, I'm thankful that we always had our deacon chairman as one of the six elders. He's there by office. And he really encouraged me to do it. And my first one was set up 10 weeks. There were a couple of things I would recommend here as a pastor. I had heard of another neighbor pastor in Atlanta that took a sabbatical for about 10 weeks, and he had his assistant pastor preach. Well, by the time he got back, he had lost the church. That emotional tug with that assistant pastor had really, people just got connected with it. And where the guy's motives were out of whack or whatever, he, he had a problem, uh, had to deal with. So I set it up with a different preacher each week while I was gone. And brought in some very good preachers as guests. And then there were some, a couple of the assistant pastors that preached in there. So it was different people. Uh, so you didn't have that kind of emotional tie that occurred with one person. Um, and then the elders, really, people knowing that they were the God-ordained leaders for the church during that time, also helped in the sense of the stability. Uh, but by the third Saturday night, Kyle, I have what I call the workaholic DTs. I was pacing the floor. Uh, how am I going to be gone another seven weeks? Scared to death. I love to preach. The thought of not preaching for 10 weeks was really scaring me. And what's going to happen to the church? And I remember pacing the floor where we were staying. And Ann woke up and said, what, my wife? What in the world are you doing? I said, well, I just can't sleep. I'm just, uh, I'm scared to death. How, how am I going to? be staying away from Johnson Ferry for 10 weeks. She said, well, if you're going to act like that, let's go on home. I said, well, I'm not quite sure I want to go home yet. But, you know, she would always bring the down-to-earth <laughs> response to those things. But really, Kyle and Matt, after going through the workaholic DTs, I realized that I had way too much dependence on being in that role of pastor, and I had to emotionally let go during that time. And the beautiful thing about a sabbatical is you get to leave a church and come back to the same church. 
And so by letting go and falling in love with Jesus in a fresh way during those days, I mean, by about the fourth, fifth week, I would call back once a week, talk to my administrative assistant, things going well. Another great thing happened. We had the three largest Sundays of decisions for Christ and membership while I was on sabbatical with the church I ever had. And you could say, oh, my goodness, what are they going to think? Well, it was joy. I mean, honestly, the Lord just said, this is joy, that the congregation is seeing this kind of response. So those kind of things happened that affirmed the sabbatical for me. And then when other ministers became eligible, the congregation had seen how valuable it was for me. And so they were supportive. Now, I do remember even a couple of elders said, Brian, along the way, what does a middle school minister need a sabbatical for? And I smiled and said, well, he needs one a lot more than me. I promise you. Can you imagine having to just work with middle schoolers day in and day out? And and so it just became a part of the culture of John Safari. It also became part of the culture as the ministers would support one another because all of us had to pitch in. Uh, It got near the end where sometimes we had two or three ministers certain summers that were on sabbatical. So we all had to pitch in, but nobody resented it because we knew that our time was coming too. When you hit the, the, it was five years, every five years for me and every seven years for the ministerial staff. And the, and the elders just felt like as the senior pastor, I needed to do it more frequently to maintain emotional health of leading the the ministry. So I'm I'm giving y'all long answers, but, they, these things were big issues uh, that God did and worked through at Johnson Perry. Well, this uh, book, Succession, is, uh, is your story. It's, it's your church's story. Uh, and, uh, and certainly we, we got to kind of see that play out on, on social media, which I was grateful for. But, uh, but certainly on the ground and for the church, it was a blessing for, for you guys. And you've written it uh, in the hopes that it would help pastors, churches, leaders of, of other organizations, too. Sell the listener, whether they're a organization, small church, large church, somewhere in between, on the value of uh, of having a plan for for this and and why they need to buy uh, your book because you are the expert uh, in it. <laughs> so well, I don't know about that, but it, it's a short book. They can read it in one sitting. It is really kind of a testimonial of what God did. Uh, I do think we all need to look at ourselves as interim pastors, whether you serve 38 years like I did at Johnson Ferry or you serve six months as an interim pastor. I think we all need to see ourselves as interims and that the church is going to continue on. I think when I hit 60, people started asking me, just inquire, uh, how long are you going to stay with this? I mean, when are you going to hang it up? I mean, they, uh, it was just understandable questions when you hit a stage of life like that. And so when I went to the elders, and said, I think we need a plan. They were very appreciative. I think a lot of the lay leaders, when they love their pastor, they, they're afraid, well, if we go to him, he's going to think we're wanting him to retire or to move on. They're a little hesitant about that. So I think if the pastor takes the initiative at the appropriate time, the lay leadership is very thankful for that. Because people in the church are wondering. Nobody lives forever. And especially the longer you're there, the more they get to wondering especially being the founding pastor. They really are are wondering all that. And the chances of success statistically are the lowest in following a long-tenured pastor. So the challenge I put before the elders and our ministerial executive staffs, look, guys, let's let's see if Johnson Ferry can beat the odds on that. And let's recognize that if God is in this whole process, 
this could be a wonderful testimony to other churches to see a long-tenured pastor where it really works well for his successor. So I think all those factors are there. And I'll, I'll say one quick thing, Matt. One of our key uh, lay successful guys uh, out of Johnson Ferry who led one of the Southeast's largest banks as the CEO, he just called me last week and said, Brian, I felt like reading your book that I was reading my story when I was leaving the particular bank. Because, you know, in corporate world, they, they are looking for their CEOs to lead them in this process. That's part of the responsibility of leadership. So I think no matter what your church size, uh, if you have any kind of tenure there, people will appreciate you providing guidance. And then from the church's end, lay leaders need to remember, nobody knows that church more than that pastor. Don't leave him out of the process. Uh, he doesn't have to pick the successor, which I did not, but he needs to be a part of the process in understanding uh, the type of pastor that is needed to come into that church. Well, Brian, as we uh, wrap up here, tell our listeners where they can find uh, the book Succession. Succession is published uh, by Lifeway, which I'm very thankful for, but you can also get it on Amazon and uh, just pull it up, uh, order it. Uh, it's something I hope search committees, uh, I hope elders, deacons, lay leaders, as well as pastors will look at. And, you know, if you're a pastor in your 40s, you think that's forever away, I think it'd be tremendously helpful to start thinking about how you want to finish, because if we are allowed by the Lord to finish well and finish strong, that only enhances the, the witness of the gospel of Christ in doing that. So I think it's good to read it at any stage of life. I've been amazed at the in the mentoring groups I lead with young pastors that, that they've been very interested and intrigued. Uh, just thinking about this. I think part of it is people see so many bad examples where it doesn't work well. And they would like to see something that was positive in that regard. So I'm very thankful to Clay, by the way. He's been tremendously supportive. It's just been a joy uh, handing things off to John Ferry to a man like Clay. He's doing a terrific job. And obviously, that's another key part of the process. But I think the most important thing is the senior pastor has to be willing to let go, have an end date, and move on uh, at that point. Because the lingering of the senior pastor is where it seems like the majority of the problems occur. Uh, pastor Wright, we sincerely appreciate you coming on today and, and hope that those that listen in were, were certainly encouraged by the content here, but they can obviously get much more uh, on uh, or in the book and uh, through your social media pages. We, I certainly appreciate that and, and the encouragement you put out there, especially about sin relief and what you're doing. And uh, so we encourage our listeners to, to pray for you, uh, to pray Thanks. for Johnson Ferry, and also to pray for your own ministries. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like have that goal at the end. Uh, how you plan to get on the on-ramp well. You know, we try and start well, uh, but often we, we just assume we're going to finish well. And with some intentionality and prayer and focus, uh, that can be done uh, with a great plan. And so thank you, Pastor Wright, for coming on. And uh, Kyle, what do we say? May your coffee be as black as night and as bold as the gospel we declare. Have a great day and thanks for listening. What's wrong with you people?